Thank you for joining us for the eighth Bogleheads Live. My name is John Luskin, and I am the host for today. My co-host for today is Dr. William Bernstein. Dr. Bernstein is an investment advisor and author of The Intelligent Asset Allocator, The Four Pillars of Investing, among others. Today, we'll be discussing investing simplicity. I'll rotate between asking Dr. Bernstein questions that I got beforehand from the Bogleheads Forum at bogleheads.org and Bogleheads Reddit, and between taking live audience questions from the folks here today. Before that, let's start by talking about the Bogleheads, a community of investors who believe in keeping it simple, following a small number of tried and true investing principles. You can learn more at the John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy at boglecenter.net. We'll be holding the annual Bogleheads Conference on October 12th through 14th in the Chicago area. We're pretty sure the agenda and speaker lineup will knock you out in a good way. Speakers include Eric Balchunas, author of The Bogle Effect, economist Bert Mel Kiel, Jason Zweig of The Wall Street Journal, Mike Piper, Rick Ferry, Christine Benz of Morningstar, today's guest, Dr. Bernstein, yours truly, and so much more. Registration is now open. You can find a link to register pinned to the top of the investing theory, news, and general form at bogleheads.org. Mark your calendars for future episodes of Bogleheads Live. Next week, Mike Piper will be discussing his updated book on Social Security. The following week, we'll have Paul Merriman as our guest. May 25th, Cody Garrett and Sean Mullaney will be discussing tax planning for early retirees. That's for the FIRE crowd. Before we get started on today's show, a disclaimer. This is for informational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be relied upon as a basis for investment, tax, or other financial planning decisions. Dr. Bernstein, thank you so much for joining us for today's Bogleheads Live. I received a lot of great questions. So thank you to everybody who submitted those questions ahead of time. We don't have enough time to answer all those questions. We can start with a couple that are at the center of our topic today, which is investing simplicity. Random musings from the forums writes, as all investors are different, how can one determine which suboptimal portfolio is right for them? And No Wizard also from the forums asks, what is his opinion, Dr. Bernstein, of the effect of personal psychology on investing as opposed to factual information and its interaction with seeking perfection? I'm struck by a quote from Robert Kaplan, who's a historian, who said that he likes to think that geography is extremely important to history, which of course it is. And he says that all history is half uh, geography and half Shakespeare. And in my impending senile decrepitude, I've come to realize that the same is true pretty much of investing. I used to think that it was 100% math, but I now realize that it's about 50% math and 50% Shakespeare. And what I mean by that is that probably 95% of your long-term success derives from how you behave in the worst 2 or 3% of the time. So it's not what you're doing right now, even with today's volatility. It's how you behave in a time like 1931, 1932, or early 2009, when it looked like the world was going to end. The way I think that the investor approaches that is to do the 
James Tobin full Monty of separation to apply the separation theorem very aggressively, which is to, instead of thinking of your portfolio as one overall portfolio, which, you know, we still do for, for formalistic purposes, what you in fact do is mentally go full two bucket, which is you say to yourself, all right, I've got this pile of risky assets, namely my stocks, and hopefully I don't need that for 20 or 30 years because that's the period of time when they can, under really bad circumstances, have negative real returns. You completely write that off in your mind. And what you instead think about during the worst of times are your safe assets. And during the worst of times, those safe assets have to be perfectly safe. Even, quite frankly, total bond market, as we recently found out, isn't terribly safe. There's only one thing that in the very short term is safe and allows you to sleep at night, and those are treasury bills. There is a reason why 20% of Berkshire Hathaway's assets at any one time is in treasury bills, and that's because I think that's Warren Buffett's little secret. It's what allows him to sleep at night. That 20% of his assets in treasury bills makes him completely agnostic about what the market is doing in any particular day or any particular year. And that's the place that you want to be. I've heard it said occasionally, and I agree completely with this sentiment, that the treasury bills, in fact, are the highest yielding asset in your portfolio because those are the assets that allow you to to sleep at night. They are, in effect, the elixir of equanimity. The question is, how much of them do you hold? Well, it depends upon who you are. You don't need very much of them if you are a young person who's saving and you have a lot of human capital. Your human capital in that situation dwarfs your investment capital, so you need an emergency fund. On the other hand, if you're a new retiree who has no human capital left, you had better have many, many years in treasury bills to save you from a bad initial sequence. That's what I mean when I talk about you know investing simplicity and why in holding a lot of T-bills may not be optimal, but it's an op- a suboptimal strategy that you can execute rather than an optimal one, which you can't execute. So well said. You can spend as much time in a spreadsheet or doing back tests as much as you like, but if you can't stick with your plan, it's not going to matter. David can ask his question on investing simplicity to Dr. Bernstein. Dr. Bernstein, thank you for your time today. I wanted to just start off and say that your book, Four Pillars, when it was first published, I bought it and read it, and then I gave it to many of my family members, and it made a big difference. So thank you for that. Listening to you speak over the years, you always emphasize when you were a practicing physician, go to the peer-reviewed research, and that's how you learned finance. And I truly appreciate that view. And I'm just wondering if you continue to look at that peer-reviewed research, and since, let's say, French Fama, is there anything out there that's really struck you that's new and different? Or have we kind of reached a plateau in terms of discoveries in finance? And then a related question is, if that is the case, why do you think it's taken so long for meaningful adoption? Why there's still so much noise and misinformation surrounding investment? Thank you very much. Thanks for the kind words, Dave. You've asked, if I can count right, two questions. The first one is, is there anything new in the finance literature. And I do spend a lot of time surveying the finance literature. It's not as complete a survey as as, I, as it should be. 
one of the nice things about having a bit of a public profile is people bring the most significant articles to my attention fairly fairly quickly so I don't have to actively survey the whole <laughs> the whole literature. I like to half jokingly say that one of the nice things about finance as opposed to law or medicine is that in those last two fields you have to keep track of literally thousands of pieces of peer-reviewed literature and case law because it's so very important and critical to day-to-day practice. The nice thing about finance is I could probably make a list of about 15 or 20 articles that someone who's interested in it as an academic field should read, and you could probably ignore all of the rest of it. So the short answer to your question then is there's almost nothing that is new in the finance literature that I consider to be significant. There are a couple of factors, particularly profitability and maybe the investment factor of FOM and French, which may be worthwhile. But if you fell asleep for the past 20 years, you haven't really missed much in the finance literature. So the question is, is why is the important peer-reviewed work, the data-driven work, ignored? And the answer is because it's not profitable. It's not profitable to anybody. If the, the, the correct way to invest is to invest passively and not trade, then 99% of the people employed in the investment industry should be finding some other field. That's the basic reason. And 100% of the people, by the way, in financial journalism. That is so well said, Dr. Bernstein. I echo that completely. There's no money in simplicity. It's pretty obviously to Bogleheads. All you really need is a handful of low-cost index funds, some Sometimes you can even get away with a single balanced fund, but that's not going to make a lot of money for folks charging on assets under management. It's not going to make a lot of money for CNBC, who's out there uh, talking about all the noise, um, all the distractions from the tried and true, super boring, super cost-effective approach to investing. Let's jump to another question that I got beforehand. This one is from Boglehead's Reddit. This user, misnamed Mod, asks, I've seen a number of Bogleheads recently bemoan the performance of bonds, which have been going down as rates go up. I've also noticed more and more young investors holding few, if any, bonds in their portfolio. So my question is, What do you attribute this change in attitude and how important are bonds for one's long-term investment plan? Also, are bonds mainly there for psychological balance or do you see them as mathematically important? The only thing I would like to say is that I try to stay away from using the word bond. I prefer to use the words fixed income because you really have to define what you mean when you're talking about fixed income. And bond, really, it's not a very good word to use. It doesn't tell you very much. I mean, the strict definition of a bond is something that has a maturity of more than 10 years or at least an initial maturity of more than 10 years years. But really, when you talk about fixed income, you're asking yourself, how much credit risk are you taking? How much duration risk are you taking? And if you want the fixed income assets to be the safe ballast part of your portfolio, as I described, that both the credit risk and the duration risk should be relatively low. And the reason why (laughs) Bogleheads have been bemoaning bonds so far this year is for obvious reasons. And that is that the duration part of the risk has really bit you in the keister. Now, I want to send one other thing, which is just because you believe in the efficient market hypothesis doesn't mean that you blindly invest in the market. There are some very rare times when certain asset classes just don't make any sense. 
And I would go back, for example, you know, 1998, 1999, when the S&P 500 was yielding 1.1%, and you could buy a 30-year tips yielding more than 4%. I can tell a little out-of-school story about Jack Mogul. After he had a second martini at dinner one night, I said, so Jack, have you cut back on stocks? And he sort of looked over his shoulder and sort of grinned and said, well, yeah, I've cut back by about 5 or 10%. So even Jack Bogle, you know, occasionally did make a call like that. Now, I make that point because you could have done the same thing and come to that same conclusion a year and a half ago when you looked at the Treasury yield curve, when you got exactly 13 or 14 basis points by going out from, say, three months to five years. So you were taking five years of duration risk to get 13 or 14 extra basis points of yield. Guess what? That's not a smart thing to do. And the risk of doing that, in fact, showed up this year. I think to add to that, why are young investors holding few bonds? Well, first off, they're young. But the second thing is, if you're a young investor, you haven't really lived through a prolonged bear market. This is one thing that I'm seeing with not just young investors, but older investors, too. We've got a little bit of investor amnesia, if you will. Folks are taking arguably more risk than they should, especially some retirees at the outset of retirement. I do find myself trying to walk folks back a little bit from their very aggressive portfolios. Yeah, I want to add one thing to that. As you mentioned the word amnesia, which I think is the most powerful force in the financial universe. It has been 40 years since we've seen a real bear market in long bonds. And I think that the people I see who advocate the use of long bonds have forgotten that they provided the only real example of awful deep risk in the U.S. security markets between 1941 and 1980. An investment in long-term treasury lost you over two-thirds of your real portfolio value, even with uh, reinvested interest. So the risk return of that particular asset class is just not there. Now, it performs a little better when you mix it in with a portfolio of stocks, but people need to realize what bond risk looks like. Wow. Two-thirds of a loss on bonds. That's pretty mind-blowing. Thanks for sharing that. I'm going to go ahead and make Ill a speaker, and you can ask your question on investing simplicity to Dr. Bernstein. Thanks for that. Thank you, Bill. Just to stay on this topic for a minute, what are your views given the current low interest rate environment and the Fed's plans going forward and owning tips of an intermediate duration? Well, tips are becoming more interesting. They're an excellent defeasing asset for the retiree. Who is the prime candidate for owning tips? Well, some people are and some people aren't. If you have a lot of taxable assets, they're not a great thing to buy above the, the ten dollars or $20,000 limit on buying I-bonds, which are always a great idea. But the prime candidate for TIPS is a retiree with a large amount of sheltered assets with a burn rate of more than 3 or 4%. That's the kind of person who has to be very careful about defeasing their future liabilities. So TIPS are a fine idea. The next question you have to ask is, what's their expected return? And until a couple of months ago, their expected returns were pretty miserable at the short end, strongly negative. Now you can go out, to, I don't know what it looks like today, but I'm guessing that today you can get a seven-year tips that will at least keep you even with inflation. So they weren't a good idea three or four months ago. Today, they may be a better idea. And as time goes on, they may get to be an even better idea. Dr. Bernstein, what are your thoughts on 
getting more questions about tips compared to uh, a few months ago. Is there some performance chasing going on? And what could that mean for investors who are deciding to move into tips now from perhaps other uh, types of bonds or even stocks? Well, if we're seeing if there's performance chasing, I'm not seeing it in the yields. Uh, the yields are are rising. So if there were performance chasing, you'd see yields falling. So I just don't see it. I mean, there may be some performance chasing going on, but it is overwhelmed by people who are scared to death that the Fed is going to tighten more. Got it. Okay, super. Thank you for that. Dr. Bernstein, on the Efficient uh, Frontier website, in one article, uh, you wrote, attempting to evaluate the risk-return characteristics of a single isolated asset from the portfolio is a wasted effort. Unless you are at the very end of the risk tolerance, the long bond is a terrible idea. It's not an investment. It's a wager on interest rates. Likewise, unless you are at the very low end of risk tolerance, T-bills are a bad idea too. One in five-year treasury seem to work best over the vast middle range of stock bond mixes that make up most of our portfolios. Dr. Bernstein, you wrote this quite some time ago comparing the ideal maturity of a treasury bond to just how much stocks you have in that portfolio. So given the goal of simplicity, that being our topic today, do you still believe that bond maturity should be matched with the percent of the portfolio investing in stocks? Yeah. You know, I went and looked that article up. It was published exactly a quarter century ago. And as you can tell from my previous remarks, I've, I've changed my thinking a little bit about that. I still think that you should be keeping maturity short. I still think that treasuries are the way to do it. But I think that the environment of the past almost 10 years now has been, for most of that 10 years, extraordinary with, at times, zero reward going out the yield curve. As long as you are getting rewarded for going out the yield curve, I think you should do it to a certain extent. Larry Swedrow suggests that you should be looking for at least 20 basis points of yield per year of maturity. Well, that gets you right now to around two or three years. Beyond two years, three years, you're getting hardly any jump in yield. And before that, you're getting rewarded tolerably well. And when I wrote that, I had no idea at all that we would be in an environment that we were in, say, 18 months ago, when you got literally just maybe one basis point for every year, two basis points for every year you went out the yield curve. And that's a situation where I think that the rational person wants to stay short. The other part of that passage that I certainly have changed my thinking about is thinking about the overall portfolio. I realize that's the mathematical way to do it. That's the system two Kahneman, Tversky, uh, Stanovich, West, psychological way to do it. But we are not ruled by system two. We are ruled by system one. You know, system two, to use Kahneman's words, is our rational facilities is really the press agent for system one. And if you're going to invest successfully through the worst of times, you have to be able to control your reptilian brain. And the way you do that is by separating out your, your safe assets and your risky assets. I certainly have changed my thinking about that. Certainly, as we uh, learn more, changing our approaches is reasonable. This question is from username Lyrolopis, if I'm saying that correctly. And that user asks, if I'm not mistaken, you usually recommend against investing in bond ETFs. However, some investors, for example, from Europe, have no access to low-cost bond mutual funds. 
And investing directly in individual bonds requires more micromanagement than some investors are comfortable with. Should bond ETFs be strictly avoided or can they be a suboptimal but acceptable compromise? If you're a European investor and you don't have access to U.S. treasuries or you don't have access to a plain vanilla open-end bond fund, then sure, there's nothing that wrong with an ETF. The problem with ETFs is you've got this liquidity mismatch. And so with a bond ETF, you are guaranteed getting the end-of-day estimated uh, price. Now, what I find amusing is that when you do that, yes, you are taking advantage of people who are buying individual bonds and perhaps even of the ETF holders, and that's somehow immoral. I think that's hilarious because by the same logic, it's also immoral to buy low in the stock market when everyone else is panicking. You're taking unfair advantage of everybody else's panic. So yeah, go ahead and take advantage of other people uh, and buy an open-end uh, bond fund. And when the, the escrow hits the ventilating system, you'll get a decent price. Related to that, this issue with liquidity mismatch in that that total bond ETF is going to have some of those bonds that are rarely ever traded. And the problem there is finding a price for that, given that those bonds are infrequently traded. Does the issue with bond ETFs, just described, does that still apply to a pure treasury uh, ETF? Should investors with a pure treasury ETF still be concerned about that liquidity mismatch? No. I mean, where it really applies, of course, is with corporate muni bond funds. It probably doesn't even apply that much to a total bond market type of fund. It probably applies a little bit, but not that much. And of course, it doesn't apply at all to a treasury ETF. But why would you want to pay somebody even three or four or five or six basis points to own a treasury ETF when you can buy the treasuries yourself at auction for nothing at most places? Greg, you can ask your question on investing simplicity to Dr. Bill Bernstein. My uh, question was on your earlier comments about T-bills being preferred for safety. Would you consider I-bonds to be pretty much equivalent? And should someone who's in the accumulation phase be maxing out the I-bond purchases per year to try to get a decent amount in, in 10 years rather than investing in total bond or another bond fund? For the most part, the answer to that is yes. So the question is, who shouldn't buy I-bonds? There's actually only one kind of person who really shouldn't be buying I-bonds, and that's the person with a large amount of assets in the sheltered part of their portfolio, that that's where they can own all of their inflation-protected securities. If half or three-quarters of your assets are in an IRA or 401k plan, that's the place where you want to own inflation-protected securities. You don't want them on the taxable side. Yes, the interest on the I-bonds is deferred until you cash them in, but eventually you've got to pay taxes on them. But you're already paying taxes on, on your IRA either before it went in or after it comes out, depending upon which kind you've got. So for most people, I-bonds are a wonderful idea. I, I suppose the other kind of person who doesn't really want to mess with I-bonds is the person who's, who's got so much assets and whose time is so precious that it's not worth the hassle of dealing with Treasury Direct. I-bonds in general, they're a fine asset to own uh, on the taxable side for most people. To echo your point about sometimes it's just not worth someone's time. There was a gentleman I worked with recently. He was an oral surgeon making seven figures a year. For him, his time is better spent uh, being an oral surgeon than getting a few hundred extra bucks with interest via I-bonds. So thinking about your particular circumstances is going to help you figure out what investment is appropriate for you as opposed to just doing what everyone else is doing. Riprap from the forums wrote, 
do you ever look back at the intelligent asset allocator and think, boy, was I wrong? If you could have a redo of that book, what would you change? And then a related question from Frey J6, also from the forums, writes, what investing concepts have you changed your mind about since writing Rational Expectations? First of all, you're asking me, what have I changed my mind about in the past <laughs> almost 25 years since I wrote the first edition of Intelligent Asset Allocator? And the answer is, as I've already said, a lot. I've become much more cognizant of the importance of designing portfolios that are not only mathematically optimal, but also psychologically optimal. And those can be two very different things. I was sort of cavalier in Intelligent Asset Allocator about the credit risk in the Vanguard short-term investment-grade bond funds. I should have known from my study of the Great Depression that taking any sort of credit risk in the safe part of your portfolio doesn't work well during a financial crisis. I certainly learned that in 2008-2009. And then more in terms of what do I know now that I didn't know then, is I didn't really fully internalize an intelligent asset allocator, just how important it was to accumulate equities when you were young. And that the risk that I really hadn't fully realized and internalized is that when people ask how risky are stocks, the answer to that question is dependent on how old are you. If you are a young person, stocks aren't really that risky. In fact, you should get down on your hands and knees and pray a volatile, awful market. On the other hand, stocks are pretty risky for the buy and hold investor. And they are Three Mile Island nuclear toxic for the retiree. So I hadn't really realized that. Now, what have I realized since I wrote Investor's Manifesto, which was written just after the global financial crisis? I can't really say that I've changed my mind about that much. I did some thinking in a few years afterward about the nature of financial risk, I realized that there's more to risk than just standard deviation and short-term volatility. And what the real financial risk is, is that a given asset class or a portfolio will lose a substantial amount of its purchasing power over a period of a generation. That's real risk. What's happening today in the stock market, or even what happened in 2008 and 2009 in the stock market, is not real risk. What real risk is, is what happened to bonds from 40 to 40 to 80, or what happened in the Japanese stock market after 1990. I want to echo that. It is certainly challenging to make a case for taking on credit risk, especially to point that we talked about earlier, looking at that total portfolio performance, looking at not just bonds in isolation, not just one asset in isolation, but stocks and bonds together. And when you do that, it is certainly much more challenging to make an argument for credit risk. It might instead simply make more sense to just hold a little bit more stocks if an investor is looking to take more risk. So hold your risk on the equity side of your portfolio, be more conservative in bonds. I want to add one thing to that, yes. which is that one of the big feature of the markets over the past decade or so has been abnormally small, abnormally low interest rates. And what that does is it drives people to take more risk to get returns. The credit spread has dramatically fallen. And investors are certainly not being anywhere near compensated for taking credit risk now as they were, say, 10 years ago. The junk treasury spread is around three or four percent per year. So you're getting four percent extra yield, say, over treasuries by investing in junk bonds. Well, that's the failure rate. That's the loss rate for these bonds. So you're not being compensated at all for taking the extra risk. It makes no sense. 
absolutely chasing yield, reaching for yield. We're seeing that right now with low rates. We have a user Midnight Sailors from Reddit asking, you've mentioned that you think most people should have financial advisors to prevent them from making bad decisions, such as panic selling. What traits, actions, or behaviors do you see in those who are able to successfully manage their retirement funds over several decades, besides reading the book listed provided in If You Can? In order to invest competently, you need to assemble four skill sets. Number one is you have to have an interest in finance. If you're not interested in it, you're not going to do well. Secondly, you have to have acquired the basics of evidence-based finance. You have to know about market efficiency. You have to know about the relationship between risk and return. You have to fully understand the futility of trying to pick stocks or time the market. You have to understand that the markets are at equilibrium and that whenever you trade stocks, the person on the other side of the trade is anonymous to you. And more likely, it's somebody who's got far more capable and is working far harder and is far smarter than you are. The analogy I like to use with trading stocks is that it's like playing tennis against uh, an invisible opponent. What you don't realize is that the person on the other side of the net is Serena Williams. The third thing that you, you need to have is the math horsepower. The average math horsepower of the average boglehead is probably two or three standard deviations above average. And it's difficult to realize that for 90% of the population, fractions are a stretch. That right there eliminates probably 90% of the population. And then finally, you have to have the emotional discipline. You can have all three of those other skill sets in spades. But if you don't have the emotional discipline, you're going to drop out at uh, the most opportune time. There's a wonderful article in what happened at the endowment board of the University of Chicago during the crisis. Here you had the most brilliant minds in finance, and it was obvious reading the minutes of their meeting that half of them had lost their nerve at that point. Those are the four things you have to be able to assemble. What portion of the population has that? It's a very small portion of the population. The thing about being a boglehead is that you live in an alternative universe of people who actually do have, for the most part, all of those skill sets. Bogleheads are not the real world. As bogleheads, we are a little jaded in our view of the world. If you're hanging out with folks all the time who are talking about the value and simplicity of simple low-cost index funds, it can be surreal uh, to turn on uh, CNBC. To rephrase uh, what you said, perhaps a little bit differently, advice-only financial planner Cody Garrett likes to say, if you have the time, temperament, and the talent to manage your investments yourself, it can make sense to do so. Now, for those who don't have those three T's, if you will, it's important if using a professional to consider the cost. And that's going to be whether you do it yourself or whether you use a professional, successful investors are obsessed with keeping their costs low. The the time... The time and the temperament, and I forget the third one. It's a wonderful talent. Yes, it's it's a wonderful alliteration. I would spoil the the alliteration and also say that you have to have the knowledge. So it's TT, it's triple TK. That's perfect. Thank you for adding that. Well, folks, that is all the time that we have for today. Thank you for Dr. Bill Bernstein for joining us today. And thank you for everyone who joined us for today's Bogleheads Live. Our next Bogleheads Live, Mike Piper will be discussing his updated book on social security. The following week, we'll have Paul Merriman as our guest. You can access all things Bogleheads at the Bogleheads Forum, Bogleheads Wiki, 
Bogleheads Reddit, Bogleheads Facebook, Bogleheads Twitter, Bogleheads YouTube, Bogleheads Local Chapters, shout out to my San Diego group, Bogleheads Virtual Online Chapters, the Bogleheads on Investing Podcast, Bogleheads Conferences, and Bogleheads Books. The John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. At BogleCenter.net, your tax-deductible donations are greatly appreciated. Thank you again, everyone. I look forward to seeing you all again. We will have Mike Piper discussing his updated book on social security. Until then, have a great week.